she says she solely went there out of a religious obligation. She believed that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of ISIS and the person who announced this caliphate in 2014, she believed that he was he had some mandate from God. Said on numerous occasions that she believed she would go to hell and burn in hell for eternity if she didn't obey this call. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She's the former Irish soldier which a court heard enveloped herself in the black flag of IS. Now Lisa Smith awaits her fate from the Special Criminal Court, which heard the details of her story into the dark heart of Islamic terrorism. During her trial, her lawyers depicted her as a vulnerable, lovelorn woman who believed she was following her religion and beliefs when she travelled to Syria for a utopia, but instead found herself in a harsh regime and surrounded with violence which she never expected nor condoned. But the state said different, and FBI officers said it was beyond suspicion that she had joined the group. Today, I'm talking to courts correspondent Owen Reynolds about the sensational trial which ended with a guilty verdict and a sobbing mother now counting the costs of the choices she made. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Owen, what is likely to happen in July at the sentence hearing? What sort of things are going to be taken into account when it comes to whether or not Lisa Smith goes to jail? Um, Well, sentencing in Ireland is a fairly, you know, it's an elaborate affair now. Judges have to take into account an awful lot of things. And what, you know, when Judge Hunt comes back to actually deliver his sentence after the sentencing hearing, whenever that is, he'll have to take into account a number of things, including the deterrent effect. In other words, we don't want other people to think that they can do these things with impunity, traveling halfway across the world to take part in what was essentially a genocide. Um, or, uh, But he'll also have to take into account that he wants to rehabilitate uh, Lisa Smith. That is a big part of sentencing. And as a result of that, there might be a portion of the sentence or even a long portion of the sentence that could be suspended with certain conditions, including things like that she might have a curfew. She might have to work with um, probation services. She might have to um, say that she won't fraternize with certain people, you know, other Mm. jihadists, things things like that. She might uh, have to say that she won't go on the internet or at least won't go on internet, certain internet chat rooms, things like that. So there could be an awful lot of conditions attached to any suspended portion of a sentence that the judge might give her. Um, He'll also probably take into account the fact that she is a mother of a young child, a young daughter. So um, the effect on the daughter also has to be taken into consideration. Obviously, she shouldn't really suffer for um, the crime that her mother committed. Um, Beyond that, then, there is also the fact that Lisa Smith spent the guts of about two years in a essentially a prison camp in Syria. So I don't know if maybe the judge might take that into consideration and say that in some ways she has already suffered for the crime that she committed mm-hmm. by going over there. She ended up spending two years in pretty appalling, horrific conditions in those two prison camps uh, in Syria. So there's a, there is a lot for the court to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he did grant her bail after she was found guilty. He said afterwards that he didn't want anyone to take from that any indication of what sentence he's likely to impose. Um, it may well be that he sees a custodial sentence as being uh, required in this case. But I do suspect that even if he does impose a custodial sentence on her, that there will be a significant portion will be suspended with pretty rigorous conditions. conditions. And you were saying that he could order some reports. Would that be psychological reports or something? In well, that's, uh, I suppose, in theory, he could do that um, if he feels that they're necessary, if he wants to establish perhaps the risk of reoffending, things like that. Mm. Um, um, maybe he might ask for some liaison with uh, probation services and things like that. So there are all sorts of reports that the courts can ask for in these in these situations but I suppose a lot of that will come down to what is said at the sentencing hearing both by his own counsel uh, and by the prosecution. And her narrative which has come out through the police interviews as opposed she never took the the stand during the case. She did not know. Yeah but her narrative is that she doesn't really know what it means to be radicalised, that throughout it all she had a belief in a God and that this call to join the caliphate came from somebody um, who she believed was almost sanctioned by her God and her religion sort of drew her to that. She's not in any way accepting that she knew what she was going into or that she was going in to offer services to ISIS. She doesn't accept, or at least she didn't in her Garda interviews in December 29, she didn't accept at all that she went there to join a terrorist organisation or that she went to join any organisation. Like you, As you say, she says she solely went there out of a religious obligation. She believed that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of ISIS and the person who announced this caliphate in 2014, she believed that he, was, he had some mandate from God and that this caliphate was mandated by God and that therefore she had a religious responsibility requirement that she go there. And, you know, she said on numerous occasions that she believed she would go to hell and burn in hell for eternity if she didn't obey this call that was sent out by by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to all Muslims to come and live come and live inside mm. this Islamic state or this caliphate. And that religious idea of the caliphate, you know, that's not a new thing. That's gone, that goes back all the way to the 7th century. Once Muhammad died, uh, Professor Hugh Kennedy, who was one of the witnesses who gave evidence in the trial, and he has written extensively about this as well. But the, the caliphate was essentially established then as a way to rule the territory that Muhammad had claimed um, because, you know, he didn't really leave behind any idea of how that should be done and who should be the leader. So various people claimed leadership and they called themselves caliphs and they um, called the territory that they ruled a caliphate. And it was essentially an area that was uh, where Islamic law was the law. Mm. And that existed for a very, very long time. You know, the Ottoman emperors claimed that, that title. There were um, leaders in Spain and North Africa who claimed the title of caliph. And this was, in her mind, an extension of that. And it was also, uh, and this is, uh, I think, an interesting part of the religious indoctrination here. She said on a number of occasions that this was a sign of the coming of judge Judgment Day. And that, again, is something that refers straight back to the religion. There is this belief within Islam, um, certainly certain some people within Islam believe that there will be another caliphate and it will grow rapidly, um, it will spread very rapidly, and it 
will herald the coming of Jesus Christ, who is an important prophet in the Islamic tradition, um, and that will signal the coming of Judgment Day, which is essentially a war between Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and um, after that, God will come and divide the world into the chosen and the unchosen. So this is something she obviously, well, according to her Garda interviews, she very fervently believed in all of that. And she saw this as a sign of the end times, essentially. Did you know much about all this stuff before this court case started? <laughs> not, a, not a whole lot. Um, I'd say, um, you know, you, you hear little bits here and there, but no, uh, I've definitely had to do a bit of research too. And you've had an education. Yeah, we had an education in court as well, because, yeah. you know, she spoke about these things and we heard from other uh, Islamists like Tanya Joya and we heard mm. from Professor Hugh Kennedy, one of the leading world's leading experts on caliphates. And where's he from? Um, Professor Kennedy is English as far as I know. Right. Um, and uh, he, he has a, a book, you can get it on on your Kindle or probably any good bookstore, just called The, the Caliphate. And um, yeah, it, it's definitely an education. It goes right back to the 7th century, right through um, doc, kind of um, documents all the different caliphs that are known about. And He basically gave a brief history of all this to the court. Yeah, because the, he was called by the defence and the reason they called him was because they wanted to establish that this caliphate that was announced by al-Baghdadi we all might think that this is some crazy out-of-the-way out thing, but Professor Kennedy said there was some, there were certainly scholars within Islam, respected scholars, who would have said that there was some legitimacy to this right. caliphate, that mm. this maybe Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was a genuine caliph and was, you know, the person to, uh, I suppose, herald the end times, right. as frightening as that might it's sound. It's all very scary stuff, really. Um, so how did she react when she was found guilty? She was clearly uh, devastated. Uh, she cried, sobbed, actually. And it was, it became clear probably a few minutes before the judgment had actually been fully re revealed or the verdict had been fully revealed. It became clear what direction it was going and that you could see that she obviously realised that. She realised what way Justice Hunt was going with it. And yeah, she became very emotional. She turned her back away from the body of the court towards the front of the court, presumably to hide her tears, but it was really obvious that she was sobbing by the end of it mm. and she had to be comforted by members of her legal team at the end. Was she there alone? Throughout most of the trial she was. I didn't see any family members directly with her, even on that day. I think there were some in the body of the court. I didn't see them interact with her. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't know them, but there were some people who I've been led to believe are family members. Um but I didn't see them interact with her and she left the court later on alone or she may have left with her solicitor, actually, but yeah. not with family members. She seems to be supported still within, um, certainly within her, her older life, somewhat supported by her family. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a, a uh, we're not able to say where she's living or anything like that as by ruling of the court. Is that right? Yeah, we're certainly not going to give her a dress or anything like yeah. that. But she does still live. Um, she she's <clears throat> she has the full support of her family. We've yeah. heard that from actually a guard liaison who gave evidence during the trial who said that the family showed a natural kind of um, concern that right. any any family would, given uh, the the situation that she finds herself in. Um, they certainly showed a huge amount of concern for her when they discovered that she was in Syria, because obviously they believed she had gone to Tunisia, and they were shocked and really 
aggrieved, I suppose, when they realised she was actually in Syria, and they were very scared for her. And she was all over the news. I mean, and, it yeah, and then she was a all shock for them. <clears throat> yeah, well, the first that they found out she was in Syria, I think, was actually from a text message she sent them. So they would have known that possibly even before it really hit the news. But um, yeah, they were certainly very shocked and very concerned, and they wanted to get her home as quickly as they could. Yeah. But uh, by that stage, it was very difficult to get her home. And actually, she in the initial message exchanges that she had with her family, she said that she wasn't coming home, that she would uh, she would never be coming home and she told her family that they should convert to Islam if they ever want to see her again because she, if they did so she would see them in heaven. Now this was when? In 2015? When she was going in or in 2019 when she's in that awful refugee camp? So those messages that I'm just referring to there were sent in very early 2016 and possibly very late, maybe around December 2015 there were various right. message, message exchanges. So this was when she was in uh, Syria. She had travelled to Syria earlier in 2015. By the end of 2015, she was living on the outskirts of Raqqa. She got married there mm. um, to a Pakistani British Muslim man. And uh, according to herself, at that time, you know, things weren't, things were pretty good, or at least they weren't terrible. Uh, she was living on the outskirts of Raqqa. She described most of her days were spent doing laundry and, you know, uh, maybe trying to learn Arabic, um, reading the Quran and occasionally going to a friend's house to drink tea and eat chocolate. So some way for her, the dream was still alive of this idyllic lifestyle where they were obviously waiting for the end of the world and to be... Yeah, I suppose it's hard to know how far off she thought the the whole end of the world and Judgment Day was at that stage. But um, I suppose de- uh, in twenty fifteen and twenty early twenty sixteen before before the bombs started falling on Raqqa, or at least before the army, the Syrian army started to advance, she described a life that was not perfect. Her husband was quite a violent man, um, but. At the same time, you know, she felt it was a, a fairly ordinary, normal life and she was happy to be there. And certainly the message, message exchanges with her family suggested she wanted to be there and had no intention of leaving at that point. Now, she's certainly still a Muslim. She's wearing the um, the clothing and etc. But did you get any sense of what her current thought process is about ISIS? Has she rejected it as she was in her statements did she criticize what they did at all um i would say and of course with those guard interviews the judge in the trial described them as fairly self-serving so you have to probably take a lot of what she said with a pinch of salt but i do think there's some truth in in certain things that she said that you know she said that if there were another caliphate announced tomorrow she wouldn't go um because she says that she has since found out that she doesn't have this religious obligation to go there. It's not something that is a requirement of her. And she said that when having been there and having seen how it turned out and, on you know, everything that she went through there, she doesn't want, she would never want to go back to that. So in those terms, yeah, it would seem that her attitude towards that has changed. Um you know, at no point did she ever express any, during those interviews, any support for what ISIS had done for any of the atrocities and so on. But, you know, there were also then message exchanges between her and other jihadists going way back to 2014 and 2015, in which she spoke about some of the atrocities that ISIS was uh, carrying out. And she certainly didn't speak against them at that time. She didn't condemn them at all. She mm. showed some curiosity about them. At some time, she showed a fairly flippant attitude towards them. And she list, you know, she was given these fairly, what were described as bloodthirsty 
um, justifications for, you know, setting a Jordanian pilot on fire or, you know, uh, shooting men in cages with a rocket or drowning them while they were in a cage. You know, she heard these pretty bloodthirsty uh, justifications for all of those things. And she didn't demur. She didn't run away. She didn't walk away from it. In the end, she still decided, having heard all that and having seen all those things, she still decided to travel to Syria. So certainly, you know, in 2014, 2015, she had an attitude or a, a view of those things that perhaps has softened since then, having, you know, herself maybe gone through a number of uh, life experiences that most of us would never, uh, will never have to endure. She's still quite a stranger to us, though, really, isn't she? And obviously very private. She, you know, she, she would have had an opportunity, certainly through her legal team, to maybe, I imagine, during the court case at some point, to say that she condemns those activities. But... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think now. I, I think her counsel, Michael O'Higgins, did put forward <clears throat> her current point of view from time to time. And one of the things that he actually did, now that you mention it, it's just popped into my head that he did mention is that she says <clears throat> she had quite a big change in attitude after the birth of her daughter. Right. That that kind of changed her outlook in, a, in quite a large way. I suppose now she, at that point, stage she realized she had another person for whom she was responsible um, and you know that led to a softening of attitudes and uh, I suppose she also did talk about <clears throat> um, when it came to radicalization and the idea of radicalization was mentioned during her 2019 interviews with Gerdy and she kind of she put some blame for that on people that she knew within Islam in 2014 and 2015 in such a, in a way, in terms that suggested to me that she recognised that there was something, that that was something radical or it was a departure from the norm. So perhaps there is some, you know, mm. settling of ideas or um, nuancing of ideas or softening. Now, Michael O'Higgins, the eminent senior counsel who represented her, he painted a picture of a very sort of vulnerable, lovelorn woman who was drawn into this first religion and then into this ideology by her sort of naivety about love and following these powerful men. Um, I mean, that is essentially how he painted her. And there is a little bit of evidence along the way that there's quite a few men involved. I mean, there's been four marriages and and it does appear that her initial um, interest in the religion certainly came from a relationship. Yeah, there was, you know, a couple of witnesses spoke about how she had was as she was coming to Islam, she was breaking up with a long-term partner that she had and that this that she was heartbroken at that point in fact um this would have been in 2010 2011 exactly. she's still in the military at mm -hmm. this point um in dundalk and you know pretty ordinary life up to then yeah yeah i mean in the military and you know as a soldier there was no problem with her service or anything like that she was quite highly thought of there was a you know evidence of some of the reviews or reports that were written about her that were very favorable um so you know and that, those were even in 2010 but um the the breakup with this um boyfriend that she had in around 2010 and 2011 according to some witnesses and according to her own counsel michael higgins it left her 
really depressed, even suicidal, very brittle, very vulnerable, and really feeling in need of something, some kind of support, something to cling on to. Um, and it was in that context that she really seems to have grabbed hold of uh, Islam. As soon as she started to learn about it, it became something of an obsession. She even said herself in her Garda interviews that the first time she read the Quran, mm. she laughed and cried and knew that it was the truth. That's what she said. Have you to the read Garda. the Quran? <laughs> I've read some of it. I haven't read all of it. And had, had it's not a particularly long book. It's, it's actually... It? I must actually pick it up. I hope to God it doesn't end up with me going somewhere mad into the <laughs> Middle East. And I... Look, I mean, there are two billion Muslims in the world. Um, you know, that's the thing that has to be kept in context here. Uh, the number of people who actually traveled in support of ISIS is vanishingly small yeah. compared to that two billion. Mm -hmm. um, and an awful lot of Islamic scholars, a lot of uh, uh, imams around the world condemned Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi from the outset and said that this was not a representation of the true Islam. So most definitely not. I mean, he he was a terrorist and and obviously somebody with very evil mindset. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no other way to put it with him. Yeah, and he selectively picked you know um, certain things that the earliest caliphs did to say you know this is legitimate because the original Abu Bakr, who was the first caliph after Muhammad died, he did this thing. The burning of the Jordanian pilot is actually something that he claims justification for because apparently Abu Bakr did something similar way back in the seventh century, where he he may he may have set fire to some enemy. So he claimed justification for all of these mm -hmm. things using selective editing of the texts and of the earliest kind of examples given by those. people. And like his dream for. The caliphate was an ancient society, wasn't it? I mean, it's so hard to picture it in the modern world that we live in, that people were to go and, you know, exist with these ancient laws and ancient punishment practices. I mean, horrific stuff that we have left behind and it's as a, a human being, you know, as human beings, because they are, are simply that. Yeah, and it's, it's a weird uh, vision that he had, because obviously he also wanted it to be a modern state in that he wanted engineers and teachers and doctors and nurses to come and they did come they did travel to to live there because he want he recognized that you know you need infrastructure and you need hospitals and you need all these things to make people comfortable in their everyday lives but at the same time this incredibly strict moral um, uh, judgments passed down on people. The idea that, you know, women must be kept entirely separate from men at all times until they're married and then they can be with their husbands and nobody else. Uh, he likes. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a frightening vision yeah. of it's what... It's very anti-woman, the whole society as well. I mean, it's... That, that, that aspect of it, it, well, I mean, yeah, it is incredibly anti-woman and it treats women really as uh, second class, well, maybe even... Lower than that. Totally. It's and that's what's so amazing to see women from modern society choose it and go into it. Yeah. But as Hugh Kennedy said, you know, what ISIS was very good at was at offering really, really simple answers to life's questions because it just basically said, here's a set of laws and rules that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, you go to hell. And if you do follow them, you go to paradise. And that's it. And they're the rules. And, you know, black and white, black and white. You don't mm. have to think about it. Uh, you you know, you read the rules and mm. you follow them. That's it. So she read the Quran and like very, 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 very few people who read it, who read it sort of went from there straight into this radical sort of belief system. But really, I suppose that was from talking to people online. 
Yeah, the radicalization took place online. Now, from a very, very early stage, though, she seems to have shown uh, an interest in the more hardline aspects. So where was she getting that from? Because that wasn't from the Quran that she read. I mean, that wasn't from picking up that book and reading that. She must have been. She was on YouTube. I mean, even one of her um, one of her colleagues in the army mentioned that there was one day when they were all together doing some sort of whatever duty they were on. They were spending, you know. 12, 14 hours uh, uh, together. And he said that throughout the entire shift, she was going on and on about how everyone has to read the Quran and, and showing him videos of what he thought were maybe fighters in, uh, Taliban fighters uh, doing maneuvers and things like this. So, And this was very early on in her in her sort of conversion. Um, so right from the get-go, she seems to have been interested in that and drawn to that. And I suppose that could be the YouTube thing where you kind of mm. get sucked down into a tunnel and then from there, she seems to have gone on Facebook and found this We Hear, We Obey page, which was one that was run by this guy, John Georgeless, who we spoke about in the last podcast quite a lot but he was probably the person most responsible for radicalizing her or indoctrinating her in these ideas um but she already had an open mind before she started talking to him obviously if she was looking at this stuff and drawn she to certainly it. seems to have been drawn mm. towards that and you know carol karima duffy who was a, a member of the dundalk mosque that were um Lisa went very early on, I think even before she had fully converted. Carol Duffy says that from the get-go, Lisa wanted to talk about political Islam Mm. rather than just reading the Quran and things like that. She wanted to talk about the politics of it. She wanted to talk about um, jihad as in holy war jihad. She wanted to talk about how important it is to, if you have a husband, you must push him to die as a martyr for the religion. Um, So, yeah, she was... From the get-go, it would appear she was very, very focused, very narrowly focused mm. on that specific aspect of There's the something there that seems to me to be an unanswered question or a slight mystery how or if there was somebody in the background maybe that introduced her to that before um, <clears throat> she started talking to John George Ellis. But then I'm sort of trying to, you know, which is always stupid to try and, you know, compare yourself to somebody in this position because she was obviously somebody with a very open mind to spirituality and to things like this. I mean, there was evidence given that she had previously tried Buddhism and something to do with the fairies, which nobody ever got to the bottom of. But Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, various forms of spirituality and yes, something to do with fairies that nobody really went very far into, but it was mentioned mm-hmm. certainly a couple of times uh, that she had tried all these things before she Plenty read the Quran. Plenty people believe in the fairies and all these parking fairies that apparently if you go into a parking lot, did you know that? Yeah. That there's a parking fairy that you can say to the parking fairy, get me a parking space. That's, now I've heard that. <laughs> I don't personally believe it and uh, it has never worked for me, but yeah, there is some fairyism out there. Um, um, definitely the older generation of Irish people used to believe in fairies, I know. That's yeah, definitely yeah. true. But, you know, that brings, I mean, she certainly got a mind different to mine. Like, she's drawn to that and she's looking for answers and she's obviously a deep thinker mm-hmm. into, you know, probably more into philosophy and things like that. And uh, one of her oldest friends, Una McCartney, uh, way going way back to January now, at the very start of the trial, she said... That, um, you know, she actually thought that at that time, Lisa probably just needed counselling, you know. Yeah. She needed some sort of psychiatric help. Yeah. Maybe she she didn't get that. And The breakup and whatever else was going on in her life was far more serious than people on the outside realised. Yeah. Um, so looking at the propaganda, because, of course, she did look at all these awful videos and was still drawn to um, to the whole radical thinking. Um 
area of Islam. But she also did look at these videos that ISIS made. And I've been at conferences and stuff to do a criminology where they are spoken about because apparently they were amazing propagandists, ISIS. Yeah. They produced these videos, really high quality, that were, you know, of people having just such an idyllic life. And I think she talks about that, that she saw those and she believed that that's what life was going to be like when she went to Syria at the second time when she went after um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi made his call. Yeah, so she th- there was one video in particular she said that she watched in which people were just having a great time. And, um, you know, she also would have read something. The, the, ISIS propaganda wasn't just on the internet either, although that was a big part of it. They, or, I mean, it wasn't just on kind of videos. They produced magazines. There's one in particular mm. called The Beak, which she seems to have been very interested in trying to get a hold of. We're, not, we're never quite sure whether she actually got to read it, but she certainly read passages from it and extracts from it that were shared with her. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the videos... The, she was being told as well by John George, as we mentioned in the last podcast, that he said to her that they were sitting around eating pistachio ice cream. And yeah. she kind of thought from that, well, how bad can things be over there after eating pistachio ice cream? So, yeah, ISIS was obviously trying to cover up the worst aspects of life there. And also, I suppose, in 2014 and 2015 and early 2016, there would have been parts within the caliphate where people would have been doing okay they had enough food they had um, you know housing and all those things and isis was uh, this is according to dr florence gob who gave evidence during the trial one of the things that they were very good at was actually administration they were phenomenally good at it given that this was a brand new state that didn't you know was created out of nothing and or created out of war essentially mm. in a very very short space of time they managed to get through the administration and they were able to allocate things like housing and food and all you know distributing the what things that promised. people needed mm-hmm. very very quickly um so there would have been parts of the of within Islamic state at that time where people probably felt like they were doing all right and they were having a pretty good life mm. and they were living you know under sharia law and all those things that had been promised to them and uh, she probably saw that as a bit of a holy grail she also said that she wanted to um, bring up her family in a place where there wouldn't be any prostitution, homosexuality, alcohol, thing, drugs, things like that. And she believed that that would be, you know, possible within Islamic State. And, mm. um, you know, she saw those things as being sinful and wrong. And she just didn't want that for her family. When, yeah, that's, you know, when they came. When they came. She, she didn't have any children at that time. But she, you know, she was looking to follow that dream as well, yeah. that dream of finding love and a family. And, yeah. I think that uh, when she did decide to go, she'd got money from an accident. She gave some to her family to renovate a home, put 7,000 in a suitcase and headed off, crossed the border into Syria. But, I mean, for me, it seems the dream ends there because she's the phone is taken and the new settings are put on it. She's mm-hmm. the, the bag has gone through and the seven grand Taken. is taken yeah. and she's put into what they call help me out here now Madafa. a Madafa which is a prison well um, she gets in where's the welcome she calls it a prison it's uh, officially it's a home for single women uh, so until you get married you're not allowed to just wander around as a woman in this Islamic state so um, that's where they keep women until they find them a husband right Jesus so but she described it as you say as a prison because she said they were a bit f- 50 to 60 women in one house. Uh, you know, they had very little food. Um, and 
they had their laptops, their passports, their mobile phones taken away. So they now had no way of communicating with the outside world, mm. no way of escape, obviously, because if you've no passport, you've no papers, you're, you're nobody really there. So um, she described it as a prison. But what happened then next is kind of important because she spent about five months there. And the evidence given by Dr. Florence Gobb was you didn't get out of these places until you found a husband. But she did get out without a husband because John Georgeless came along. According to her, I think she said that he had a paper from an uh, Amir who, that allowed her to leave the Madafa. Now, this was, Florence Gobb said, extremely unusual uh, for anyone to be, for a woman to be released into the hands of a man who was not her husband or her father. But that's what happened with her. And John Georges obviously was very active with ISIS. He was now a propagandist. he was a Texan, wasn't he, originally? So he, yeah, we'll go back on him, I suppose. We, we talked about him in the last one, but maybe it's important to go back over who he is. He was a Texan who converted to Islam and he took the name Abu Hassan. And um, he learned Arabic and according to his former wife, Tanya Joya, he was a very articulate, very intelligent, very charismatic man who drew, could draw people to him and could overwhelm them with his knowledge of scripture, his knowledge of the Quran, and just with his general intelligence. Um, and that does appear to be what he did to a certain extent with Lisa Smith. And Tanya Joya spoke about Lisa Smith as being very kind of overwhelmed by him and looking up to him in a very big way and hanging on his every word, essentially. Um, was she okay about that? <laughs> like Joya? Tanya yeah. Joya? Um, I, that's a, that's a good question. She, I know she mentioned at one point that they, when they were in Egypt that she was to come to visit and she yeah. was hoping she'd help her out with the kids. But was that's it a right. situation that she was going to be another woman in the household? Well, George just did end up taking on multiple wives. Um, and uh, I think Tanya Joya did say that he often lied to her and used the Quran to justify lying to her. I would say their relationship was far less than perfect anyway. Um, but she doesn't seem at that time to have been jealous of Lisa. No, mm. that was she was just she was happy to have another woman there, maybe to help her out with things that she felt overwhelmed by. She had a number of kids and so on. She said that she was pretty overwhelmed by that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she seems to have been OK with it. Mm. From what we, you know, from what we heard, they were all okay with it, basically. But yeah, nobody, yeah. yeah and I suppose know. maybe this was maybe Lisa Smith wasn't the only woman that George List was trying to kind of indoctrinate and trying to bring in, and she probably that, that was probably seen as part of part of what it was. He to was be, targeting particularly the foreign women. Well, uh, potentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. English speaking, and when he took her out of this Madafa, was his wife still with him, or had she left Syria? Tanya Joya had long gone. She'd gone way back in 2013 right. uh, and had and was living in Texas by this stage, back with actually Georgilis's parents, or at least they were the ones who got her out of Syria. And so she went to Texas to, to be around them. But uh, And he's a single man then? Well, well uh, so now he has married another woman. Oh. And, uh, and this woman is a, a Syrian. And he has a family with this woman now. I, 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 I don't know if they're his kids, her kids, whatever. But anyway, he has a new family there. And Lisa Smith actually stayed with them for a while, but she didn't like it. She said that they couldn't speak English. She didn't uh, didn't speak whatever language they were using. And um, she actually said that they were very bad mannered. Um, 
she didn't enjoy staying there. She said that Georgius wasn't spending any time with her. She thought she was going to go live there and be his student effectively. And he was going to teach her all about the Quran and the religion. But instead, he, she said he didn't really speak to her and he didn't even come home very her, often. Basically. He goes to yeah. her. <laughs> so she said he wouldn't be there most of the time. When he did come, he'd just go to his room and be by himself. Mm-hmm. So after a few months of this, she said she'd had enough and she, she told him that she wanted to get married. And so he picked a husband for her effectively, this Pakistani uh, British Muslim man um, who she said she didn't want to marry, but he told her, you don't really have a choice here because, Mm. and now this is according to Lisa Smith, he told her that, you know, a lot of the Arab men that were within Islamic State at that time, if you marry one of those, um, first of all, you probably won't be able to speak to him because you won't have a common language. But uh, secondly, he might treat you very badly. He might lock you in the house and leave you there all day. He might beat you, all these things. So he said that this person, this uh, this man that that he had chosen for her, had good manners, speaks English, and will treat you, be- treat you better than the other men around here would. Right. So he more or less told her, you don't have a choice. It's, it's that or nothing. Mm. So, so she reluctantly married. She reluctantly, and he was a border patrol guard. So he presumably is stopping people coming in and stopping people getting out. Yeah, well, his job, uh, multivarious, he was a teacher apparently so that was initially what he was doing but then she said that the the school that he was teaching got closed down then he was apparently teaching um, nurses how to speak English but then he got sacked from that she said that he was you know, accused of mis, uh, of incorrectly correcting some exam papers or something Mm. like that so he got sacked from that so she said that he became um I suppose quite miserable. He was at home all the time, wasn't doing anything, and she was trying to encourage him to go and do stuff. He was, she said, sent to Rabat, which is border patrol at one point, came back from that. She encouraged him, she said, to do a sniper course so that he could maybe be his own boss. That's This is according to Lisa Smith's um, account to the Gardaí. And she said he did do the sniper course. She said he had a Kalashnikov, but she also said that he never used it. He didn't shoot anyone and uh, he didn't use the sniper training. He Sounds like she didn't get the best hand of cards with him now. No, and then he was, of course, quite violent Violent towards her her, as well. You know, she described a number of occasions on which he beat her up. And And she described, or certainly during her interviews, that she had a number of miscarriages and she's very upset when that uh, came out. And then she had her daughter. So things go horrifically wrong then. Bombs start landing and she has to flee. Yeah, so she was in Raqqa at the home that she shared with this man. um, And... uh, her daughter's not born at this stage, actually, when the Syri- when they get word that the Syrian army is coming. And she noticed that a lot of the government officials had packed up and left. And she said, right, I have to get out of here. Her husband wasn't there at that stage. He was possibly on border patrol or mm. doing something. But she realized she was going to have to get out of there because if the government guys are going, then that means there's something really bad happening. So she started to, she, she said she got help from Georgeless to get away. I think the first city she went to was Mayadeen, if I remember correctly, uh, where she stayed again with Georges for a little while until her husband found her. And then they moved into an apartment above a falafel shop, I think she said. And it was around this time that her daughter was born. Right. And then, of course, Syrian army kept advancing. So they had to move from there. And she describes going from village to town, pillar to post, um, living in pretty appalling conditions, even seeing people being shot by snipers right in front of her, going without food for long periods of time. She describes how at one point when they were living in a certain place, the only food that people could find was horse meat. And they were kind of trying to, you know, scavenge for whatever they could get. Mm. Um, So that continued then. I suppose it must be about... 
you know, two, two and a half years, certainly a year to two years, something like that, where she's going like this from place to place. With a baby with her. With the baby with her, um, you know, watching snipers shooting people and then having to get away from that. Um, And then until she ended up in Baguz, which was the last stronghold that ISIS had, and it was eventually taken as well by uh, the Syrian forces. And I think the Turks were involved then as well. So that's who took her, where where the Turkish armed forces... um, took her and put her in a prison camp called Al Hall, which is a really appalling place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, she ended up uh, going to another prison camp called Ionisa. So you're talking tens of thousands of people held, you know, behind barbed wire, living in pretty appalling conditions. Mm-hmm. At that point, then, her husband had been killed and Georgilis had been also killed? Yeah, Georgilis is dead at that stage. So her husband died in fighting in Hajin, or at least he's presumed dead. He's almost certainly was killed at that stage. He put her on a truck and told her, if you want to live, you need to get in that truck, get out of here. So she said she hugged him and left him there. And when she was telling Gerdi about that, she actually, that was another point where she became very emotional during mm-hmm. her Garda interviews. She cried and she said that every time she tells that story, she cries because she didn't realise at that stage that that was the last time she would ever see him. Quite honourable of him in those circumstances. In the you circumstances, know, but given yeah. that he, d- he did send her off to survive with the child. Her relationship with him is kind of enigmatic. It's hard, you know, mm. he, on the one hand, obviously he was a brutal person, very violent, uh, very abusive. Uh, but on the other hand, she does say that he protected her in a lot of ways, protected her from things that were going on. And obviously she was very emotional to say goodbye to him. And she said she didn't realise that that would be the last she saw of him. But a couple of days later, she discovered, she was told that everyone who went back to fight in Hajin was wiped out, was killed. Wow. And what about Georgilis, who does seem to be the true love of her life, maybe during this period? <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if they make the Hollywood version yeah. of it, that's what will happen, yeah. But... Um, she always said no that she had no interest ever in 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 uh, that, that it did come up uh, at one point but she did she she had no interest apparently i think her, her through her counsel she communicated that she was interested in his mind yeah. did he how did he die or did she did she real did she see that or anything she didn't see it but he was presumed she said that he was presumed to have been killed in a bombing um she she went into detail about something there was a kind of a a coming together of a number of different, maybe senior people within the ISIS organization. And they met together and a bomb fell and hit it and wiped out a whole load of them, Georgia's among right, them. Right. So she thought maybe it was a targeted drone strike, that, they, that somehow the Americans or somebody got a tip off as to where all these people were at that time. And they just targeted it with a drone strike. And that was the end of him. Now, she's eventually discovered in this camp and then the Irish political situation kicks in and the concern obviously is for her child and her and the conditions they're living in and she's brought back, arrested, questioned and the the, the trial subsequently happens. But in the time, the two and a half years that she's sort of fleeing and things are obviously going wrong and she is still, and it was the state's case, that she was still with ISIS. Mm -hmm. She didn't turn to run away from them or... Yeah, well, that was definitely, uh, it was a, a, a theme throughout that rather than, that this wasn't her just fleeing, generally fleeing, you know, a war, but it was her running with ISIS, you know, the ISIS front line um, perfectly maps where mm. she was at any given time. Um, now, to hear, to hear her tell it herself, though, um, it's really just she was going where she could go. She said she couldn't escape from 
you know, the, the, the people and the surroundings that she was in. Because ISIS, in the first instance, ISIS wouldn't let you out of their territory. If they found you wandering in their territory and you didn't have a good reason for it, then you could be tortured, killed, raped, whatever. And she didn't feel like she could get, even if she managed to get across out of ISIS territory, she didn't think she would be safe if she fell into the hands of the Syrian forces. She was terif- as terrified of that as she was of falling into any, into ISIS's hands. Mm. So, um she didn't feel that she had any way out of there. She did say that there were people who managed to get out, but it cost them thousands of dollars, thousands of euros to pay to human traffickers who had ways of getting you to the border. But she didn't have that kind of money, so she was never going to be able to do that. So that's her version of it. Mm-hmm. The sta- as you say, the state's case is that she seems to have gone with ISIS as they retreated across Syria. Like, would somebody like her in that situation not have, and given that there'd be traffickers and all the rest of it, would she not have had the currency of being from Ireland and having a supportive family back home who, no doubt, had they been contacted and told where she was and this situation they would have done it all in their power to get to her did she ever try and and contact them or um by the time she ends up in the prison camps yes she is contacting them she didn't ever ask them for thousands of euros or anything like that um and doubtless i'm sure they would have found a way to get it to her if they had known that that's what it would have taken uh to get her out of there but um i, I suppose it just it's it's hard it's a hard thing to know because all you can go on is what Lisa Smith yeah, say, has it's said. Somewhat as the nona answered question again and whether she was still Yeah, and while she's fleeing again at the, the Syrian forces I can imagine it would be very, very difficult to get a message to anyone about anything and even mm. to tell them where you are, because you probably don't even know where you are at any given stage. Mm. Um and how do you get someone out of that predicament anyway? Because it is a war zone then. It's not like you can just send in a bus or, you know, get on a flight or whatever. So it would have been, I imagine anyway, and according to herself, it would have been extremely difficult at that stage. And then when she ends up in the prison camp, it really becomes a diplomacy issue then. It's how do you get her out of that? Is it the Irish government is going to get her out? Um, who do you pay money to to get her out of there? That would have been a difficult situation too. Uh, and eventually, of course, it was the Irish government that got her out. But it yeah. took them quite a long time. She was there till December 2019 mm. in, in Ionisa. And uh, she was flown to Dublin Airport and she was arrested uh, as soon as she landed. So Now, the sentencing's in July 11th, I think, is it? The sentencing hearing is on July 11th, The hearing yes. is on July 11th, okay. So then it might take another couple of weeks for sentencing. I would imagine depending. so. I think the court will want to consider everything that's said, yeah. in particular by her defence counsel, who will offer their plea in mitigation, where they'll give all the reasons why they will say that she should not, maybe shouldn't face a custodial sentence, or if she does face a custodial sentence, that it should be as short as possible. Um, and so the judge will have to take all that into account, but he'll also obviously have to take into account the fact that she did commit a very serious offence, and, uh, you know, everything that goes along with that, you need to punish that. You need to create a deterrent effect to others who might be considering doing the same thing. Um, but also you need to consider, the court needs to consider rehabilitation and her the, the risk of her future offending and things like that. So all those things will come into play. Whether she goes to jail or not, her future is going to be marked by that conviction for, for terrorism and her travel plans forevermore are going to be, I imagine, curtailed. Hampered, curtailed. Yes, and so. she's she has a mark on her head now. So, I mean, that in itself. Yeah, it's an odd thing as well. I suppose, um, going back to the Garda liaison, who said that there were a number of concerns for her safety when she was coming back to Ireland. 
that if she returned to Dundalk, there might be people there. Certainly there were comments on social media and things that suggested that there were people who wouldn't welcome her back into the community. But um, Gerda Kilgannon did say that she's actually been quite well accepted there. She's obviously very well known because you mm. would you would notice her going around the place with the hijab on. But people seem to have accepted her and taken to her. She goes about her business during the day um, when she's not under her curfew and, you know, seems to get on pretty well. So um, she comes across as being quite a, an inoffensive person. I would say that's you probably know, given true. Given what she did and all the rest of it, but when you're sort of just polite, watching her, yeah, polite, quiet, nice, keeps yeah. to herself. And that was another thing that the Garda said that in, in all his dealings with her, she's always been very polite, very, um, you know, uh, easy to deal with. Um, in her Garda interviews, it certainly came across that she is a very talkative person. She would, she answered every single question that the Garda put to her. Um, and she didn't answer the questions in a, you know, th- there didn't appear to be any kind of... Um, um, uh, you know, thinking out the answers to the questions beforehand. It was very much the question would be asked and she would immediately start mm-hmm. talking. And she speaks very, very rapidly. Um, and, you know, probably the thoughts are coming to her quicker than she can get them out, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting what the future holds for her. Most uh, definitely. I want you to write the book. Um when you're on your holly bops over the summer. Yeah. Gives you something Long to do. Long court holidays I'll in buy the it. summer. Um, so look, Owen Reynolds, thanks very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.